Welcome to the Crypto Graduate Podcast by the Stanford Blockchain Club. I'm Julianne, a student at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. And I'm Raman, an electrical engineering PhD student at Stanford. In this podcast, we hear the personal journeys of the builders, thinkers, and doers in crypto. We learn why they started in crypto and what they did to graduate from crypto student to crypto leader. Let's get started. The views expressed by guests and hosts on their podcast are their own and not reflective of their organization or affiliates. And please keep in mind, the podcast guests and hosts are not providing investment advice. Thanks. Catherine, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the Crypto Graduate Podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Amazing. Catherine Gu is the head of CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies at Visa, and she graduated from Stanford with a master's in management science and engineering. Catherine, thank you for joining us to walk us through all things stable coins, central bank digital currencies, and probably the future of money. We appreciate having you here. We'd like to start by um, hearing about your personal journey of getting into crypto. So we would love to hear, when did you first hear the word blockchain or cryptocurrency? That's a good question because it's been <laughs> some time, I think. I mean, I think I've probably heard about Bitcoin before blockchain, to be honest. And I think that was when Bitcoin started to gain a lot of media attention because of the speculative nature. So, you know, I was back in London when I was working for finance. Certainly this word Bitcoin was here and there, you see it. So I would say probably 2015, 16, but I don't think I properly got into blockchain until probably around 2018, because before coming to the US, I did a mini summer internship with a company in London, a startup, and I was doing blockchain research for the first time. And it's looking to this protocol called Mimblewimble. And it's actually through that I learned a lot around, you know, crypto and blockchain and the sort of game theories and stuff around it. So that's how I started my, I would say, the blockchain journey. Awesome. And what got you so excited about blockchain enough to dig into it full time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just uh, personal things, like in the sense, firstly, I think that what's so attractive about blockchain is, I guess, if you have some sort of quantitative foundations and understanding the principles, it's actually like much easier than I thought it would be to get into this whole thing. I guess before doing my whole research, some internship, I was like, you know, blockchain is all for the CS people. And I would understand because it's, you know, you have to learn to code. I think there is truth to that for sure, because you do need to implement things. But so I did economics while I was an undergrad at Cambridge. And actually having that Cambridge sort of economics background helps a lot because there's a lot of sort of economics, you know, the whole mechanism design incentives involved when it comes to blockchain. And I think that's the beauty of it, because it's really kind of combining maths, combining like, you know, CS, combining economics and finance all together to come to this sort of new technology. And that's really exciting for me, because, you know, just by chance, somehow, like I had more experience in finance, I did economics, I really love the idea of just thinking about these things. And from a more mathematical angle. So that's how and why I guess blockchain becomes so attractive to me. So, yeah, no, and that's awesome because that's actually a common theme where a lot of people are intimidated by it at first. And then, you know, I always tell my friends, for example, 50, 100 hours, and you yeah. would learn surprisingly a lot about it, you know, and probably learn more about econ than you ever have. I'm an engineer, so I, I never formally learned economics, but it's really cool to learn that stuff by proxy of being into blockchains. Definitely. 
And I think it's like you're actually putting economics this time around to practice because you really need to watch out for those incentive mechanisms because everything is assuming you know decentralized. So there's no regulators or government to kind of providing those safeguards, you know, to protect people. So then anything can be hacked. And therefore, how do you ensure that people don't have that incentive to do so? So that, I think that's actually, you know, putting the real economics into challenge. So yeah. Yeah. On this thread, Catherine, we know you studied economics and also have your master's in management science and engineering. Mm-hmm. Which of those two backgrounds has prepared you best for being in crypto? And which of the two do you find kind of keep you interested and engaged as you think about staying in this industry? Right. So I have to make a shout out to CS251 because I don't think without that class, I would never get into crypto. So definitely by studying and later on working with Professor Dan Benet was fantastic. That class, I would recommend anyone at Stanford who have the chance to take it, to take it. And I was lucky, actually, that first quarter when I was at Stanford, I took CS251. And then there's another class called 269i, which is the incentives in CS and was taught by Tim Rothgarden. So I think actually combining these two made a lot of sense to understand what's going on. And I would say certainly all my training and education from the Stanford two-year period definitely laid a lot of good foundation for me to get into the crypto and blockchain industry because after that CS251, I was doing research into like MakerDAO, understanding it from sort of a data scientist perspective, because I was doing some empirical analysis using all the data available out there. So that was really fun, but also allows me to actually learn from a real project around blockchain. So yeah. Yeah. And, and we did have the fortune of speaking with Dan. And I know that he really intends on making 251 open to basically everyone on YouTube at some point. That's and, amazing. Yeah. And, and his frustration is that the crypto space or the blockchain space is developing so rapidly (laughs) that he says year to year when he teaches it, he basically has to revamp the curriculum, you know, like something new comes out. Yeah. Which is exciting to be honest. Absolutely. Well, we'll get to talk a little bit about your current role, um, but first let's dig in a little bit to stable coins and central bank digital currencies. So all of our listeners are on the same page. Exactly. So yeah, so there's going to be two terms, right? That maybe listeners will listen to a lot during this podcast. And one is stable coins and the other is CBDCs or central bank digital currencies. So Catherine, just at a high level, would you be able to maybe explain each term, perhaps their relationship, how they differ? Because sometimes I know it can be confusing if you know one and not the other. Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, you can look at both stablecoins and CBDC as this kind of class of digital kind of tokenized fiat, really. But just kind of peeling through the layers, you know, this is where you, you want to look at the evolution of, say, cryptocurrencies and all the way to stablecoin now is CBDC. I mean, certainly, you know, we, we all know Bitcoin was created out of the Satoshi Nakamoto's paper, but like things like Ethereum and Bitcoin has a lot of these volatility and also the scalability issues. So I think in the original white paper that they intended Bitcoin, for example, to be used for payments, so far it hasn't really reached to that state yet for all the two properties that we were talking about. And stablecoin actually emerged because people can see the benefit of something which is natively available on blockchain but also something stable for them to use for specific use cases. And this is where we want to understand exactly, you know, why stablecoin was creating in the first place. So as we know, there's a lot of trading activities on the whole blockchain ecosystem. For people to trade in and out, then you have this realized PNL on your balance sheet. Like I think without the existence of stablecoin, you have to kind of, you don't want to park it in Bitcoin or Ethereum term because your profit might 
decreased by 50% because of the market volatility. So a lot of people traditionally prefer to actually convert it to fiat USD, as we know. But that takes, because you're interacting with a banking ecosystem, something on Web3 and something on the banking ecosystem takes like two or three days. It might be kind of even longer. Clearly, that's not a very efficient system for people for that specific use case. And this is how you know, the whole stablecoin got created and hence driving still to this day a major, I would say, use case of stablecoins. Now, thinking about what is stablecoin exactly. So stablecoin is really that you know, it is stable to something, right? To something underlying value. And we have a whole range of stablecoins, but of course, the best well-known stablecoins, those which is USD stablecoins. And what they represent is essentially their value is one-to-one exactly to the underlying US dollar. So when US dollar goes up or down relative to other foreign exchanges, the stablecoin USD should go exactly like that. And in order to be able to achieve that stability, the mechanism allows you to do that is you have to deposit $1 somewhere in a bank account, and then you can create one equivalent of that on the blockchain system. So it's just a one-to-one system. You can completely kind of replace that USD fiat with, say, a house or with, I don't know, gold or something. And that's also stable coins as well. The nature is it has to be pegged to some underlying value that you have. And I think, you know, with that notion, it's pretty simplistic. People understand, well, if I want to have a US dollar equivalent that lives natively on blockchain and for this range of activities I want to do, that's why I think, you know, USD stable coins make a lot of sense. Of course, now nowadays you have other sort of euro and pounds stable coins and stuff as well. Now, this has been going on, I think, for probably the past five, six years. And, you know, now stablecoin has achieved such an incredible market cap in circulation in general. And this is where the central banks start to take notice of the activities happening in that entirely private driven ecosystem. And for the right reason, right? Because, you know, central banks role, the pure mandate is really trying to engage on inflation, trying to make it within the target. And also with that, I guess, eye towards, you know, maintaining economic growth and labor market activities and so on. Now, money represents a very huge, important thing in the whole, as a key instrument to regulate the economic activities. Because by quantitative easing or by tightening, you know, you, this is where you really regulate the economic activities in the world. But if you have this whole new set of emergence of stable coins, which represents private issuance of money, that kind of poses somewhat a threat in the future if stable coins gain even larger market share, because that really does directly implicate, you know, what is the central bank's monetary policy, how effective it could be. Imagine if everyone in the future is switching over to use stable coins instead of your day-to-day dollar in your bank account. That means, you know, there is somewhat a reduced relevance by central banks to that extent. I think, you know, there's a motivation from both sort of a risk as well as opportunity perspective coming from central banks, probably, I think, started around 2018, 2019, looking at this whole ecosystem. The opportunity is really around what is blockchain? What can this new innovation do to the world? Can I change it to something that is actually as a public good even? but also kind of maintaining these sort of private competition, allowing things still to happen, but also trying to create something new as well in the public sector as well. And then there's the risk, as we talked about, which is that potential threat to the monetary sovereignty. So I think with all these combined, this is where, you know, the notion of CBDC got created. So I would definitely say CBDC is still a very new kind of term. I I remember like I did a class like actually last quarter for, for Milgram's class. And well, at the beginning of the class, I was asking students, how many of you have actually heard about CBDC? I would say right now, maybe 50% of people have heard about it. And I think it hasn't got 
like into the mainstream mainstream notion, especially for young people who are looking at crypto assets and trading and stuff. You know, CBDC is still like a distant future because there's only a very very handful of countries actually having CBDC. But I think it is important to the point during you're saying, you know, what is the future of money? What would that look like? I think it's going to be a combination. You know, you still have the crypto assets of the world, the stable coins, which is privately driven, and now you have the CBDC, which could be public driven or public and private sort of initiative partnership going on there. So, so CBDCs are certainly a less well understood term, and I love love how you put it because you know, like stable coins in some way really drove mainstream crypto adoption. You know, as you said, like it started off as some way to store PNL that wasn't actually just going to U.S. dollars. And then yeah. now, you know, many people might have heard DeFi or like decentralized finance, where stable coins play an extremely important role, like taking that to the extreme and doing crazy things like lending. And yeah, exactly like you said, you know, I guess my question to you is: Do CBDCs? Do you see a future in which they kind of plug and play with certain DeFi protocols as like a substitute for stable coins? Is that how you maybe think about them? Because a lot of people, for whatever reason, think about them as adversaries to one another,、mm-hmm. like stable coins and CBDCs. And I think that's maybe you know. Not really the exactly correct way to view them. So I'm just curious, like, what you think about them plugging and playing with DeFi in the future? Absolutely, I think that's an excellent question, and you definitely spot out on the kind of the current tension between, you know, stablecoin, CBDC, or whatever in the future. And funny you are asking this because most recently, if you look at some of the conferences and seminars hosted by, say, international organization like BS, so Bank for International Settlement, they're actually having this whole series about. CBDCs into DeFi in the future. They're looking at CBDC. They call it CBDC 2.0. What's the relevance of that into the future of DeFi and stuff? I think just taking a step back. So again, the difference between stablecoin and CBDC is stablecoin is just privately issued, and central bank digital currency essentially it could be publicly issued, i.e., central bank directly issue that. Well, alternatively, you can also have this, I would say, middle ground, which is called synthetic CBDC. This Is a notion that was originally created by the IMF. So essentially, imagine a bank in the future they have a direct account with the Fed, and then that is representing central bank reserves. And on top of that, you can then issue kind of the synthetic CBDC. So it's actually issued by the private bank, but actually the reserve that you hold is the actual central bank reserve, not your day-to-day commercial bank money, and it is also safe, right? So there's a few variations to that. And just thinking about What that means in terms of the relationship. So I think the next few years is very critical because CBDC is still in the making. It's very early on, right? And a lot of central banks are actively researching and kind of coming up with a design principle of how would that CBDC look like. And I think you know whether people think about tension or like competitive nature or complementary. Ultimately, it will depends on the use case. And I really do believe that. And I think. You know that use case is going to look very different of what's the future use case in the U.S. versus somewhere in the emerging market like Brazil or Mexico. But because you know simply people have different preferences for money and they have different use cases for whether that's a USD stablecoin or whether that's a Brazilian digital real in the future. And I think that is really critical thing when people are thinking about these sort of competition or not because it's a very nuanced thing. And like I would love to see that there is more sort of synergies. And symbiosis between CBDC and stablecoins, then it has to be one or the other. Again, what does the future of CBDC could look like? Well, it could look like very different from how a cryptocurrency is created. You know, it doesn't even need to be built on a blockchain system. It could just be built on you know the existing payment rails that we have today. 
Now, how easy is it then for CBDC to interoperate with all the things in, say, Bitcoin, Ethereum, stablecoins? Probably not a lot. But if CBDC is created on blockchains, then there's actually a lot of interesting use cases. Again, it really depends on if that country is really looking for these specific use cases. So, you know, if let's say a central bank is thinking about, you know, the future of metaverse, the future of decentralized finance, could I have another version or another option for consumers to access these markets through something other than stable coins or something other than, say, a, a US stable coins? And this is where central banks could be potentially interested. Say a CBDC can be that gateway because if it's built on blockchain, it can be in, you know, interoperable into the future ecosystem. Now, of course, if a central bank is looking at, say, financial inclusion, we're looking at specifically, say, for underbanked or unbanked population, then maybe CBDC's design might look very differently. Again, maybe in that case, you know, CBDC might not even touch anything on blockchain. So these are very nuanced conversations. And I think the important thing is consumers should always, well, you and I should always have like as many options as possible, because I would like to make that choice myself depends on my specific use case and preferences. And hopefully that would be the way in the future in which we have a range of options. All of them are accessible and friendly because I do, by the way, feel that, you know, just to teach my, say, my grandparents to use a digital wallet, that's kind of impossible, right? So that's the thing. So we need to think about a lot of these different angles. And I would always highlight use case is the number one. So, yeah. yeah. I love this idea of modularity. I think coming from finance, one of the most powerful things about decentralized finance is the idea that you get to pick and choose. Like mm-hmm. our traditional banking system, you get so locked in so easily. So your points around if we have all of these choices, both centralized and decentralized, and the user gets to choose based on their needs and use case, is a super powerful way to frame kind of why we're all why we're all in this world. And stepping back a little bit, Catherine, one big difference between cryptocurrencies and kind of stable coins and central bank digital currencies is this idea of identity, your <laughs> physical person attached to the dollars being moved around. And for governments, Um, They really care about who's moving their money around. And in crypto, there is more anonymity. I would love to hear how you think about this balance of identity to a physical person, for example, a KYC or KYB identity, and how that connects and plays into this more decentralized anonymous world. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a very important future roadmap into, you know, as you were thinking about all these future of money and digital currencies, there's also this big work stream going on around digital identity overall. I think, in fact, in Europe, they're having this initiative to build out all these digital identity wallets down the road together with all the initiative into digital euro. So you can definitely see that from a regulator perspective, there's a lot of kind of interesting exploring, but also similarly, when it comes to the crypto ecosystem, we have so many things, which is kind of privacy preserving protocols and stuff, you know, the first generation of Monero, Zcash and stuff like that. And now you're moving on to the next generation. So I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities down the road. I think when you're looking at privacy, which is a very good question, I think we need to go deeper into exactly what that privacy might mean. Some of these privacy could mean it's around use of privacy. Is every single transaction, do I want people to see who am I paying, how much and so on. There's also the other aspect of privacy, which is around data, data analytics privacy. In a sense, you know, I have all these sort of transaction flows around the world. Different banks have different customer identity and all the databases, but each bank do not share that information with another bank, right? And this is because for the privacy consideration of protecting your data. 
And that's a little bit different from the use of privacy. And you need to figure out like which one matters more. Well, I mean, may, maybe both, but like, again, depending on the specific use case and scenario, this is where we, we get deeper because I think the data privacy part is going to be huge. You know, central banks have certain incentives, say, when CBDC is available in the world, because in the future, you know, imagine CBDC is much more digitized because, you know, it can track the economic activities and so on. It can be a really good, good tool if you can track, say, the velocity of money or the circulation of money at any given moment in time. And to calculate things like GDP and inflation, right now we have a gap of, say, a month for inflation, three quarters for GDP. It doesn't have to be that way, right? So CBDC may be that potential very powerful instrument to address it. But then you really don't want central bank to dig in to see every single transaction that's out there. But you still want to have an aggregated picture of what it looks like. So this is kind of touching more on the analytic side. Hmm. Now, moving back to that use of privacy, you know, every day we're already spending our credit card, doing a lot of banking activities. I mean, if you're asking like a normal person, how much do you care that you, you want to shield away every single transaction to that very granular level? I would actually challenge the notion, maybe it's not necessarily catering for the mass majority. There is definitely some kind of population who are especially in the crypto space care everything down to the bottom of that anonymity. But is that really for the mainstream population? I don't know. So that's why as we're looking at these protocols is great because it really drives innovation and technology into this front. And then when you're thinking about say, what does that mean in terms of say a startup idea or product, then you need to start doing the sort of market research and understanding to what degree people really want versus like, what do you want to make sure that is say satisfying all the legal and regulatory compliance related stuff? Yeah. I just want to touch on one point. This is me nerding out a little bit as a political scientist and economist um, well, mm-hmm. by background, but this point around the velocity of money and as a use case, like I've always wondered if we could finally settle the debate about like trickle down economics versus, versus other economic debates, like where we spend our money as a country mm-hmm. and how impactful it is on our overall economy. You could answer that question by tracking a currency with a blockchain to see just how it's being spent and, and where. Yeah, so, and, and, and I mean, yeah. to fuse again, the now I'm the engineer perspective onto <laughs> that, but like the beauty is like every time, like you were talking about data privacy and there's, you know, so many innovations in cryptography that actually mm. would allow for this, right? Like it's like, in some sense, you could probe this as a black box, still get mm-hmm. the relevant data that you want, but just be, you know, have the sanity that you're not actually being tracked down to the granular level that yeah. you wouldn't want to be. So that's, and this is why I think blockchains and crypto are super interesting because you can just, you know, there's so many layers to it. And you just, as you get down the rabbit hole, I think even when we talked with Professor Dan Bonet, like he was talking about how he could talk on and on about anything just because there's like an infinitely deep rabbit hole yeah, around yeah. any of these things. Yeah. So I did have one question about like the user privacy, right? So like differentiating mm-hmm. data privacy mm-hmm. versus like identity privacy in some sense. Mm-hmm. Like I've thought a lot about this and I think in like functioning society, if you're interacting with financial services that are more like credit oriented, it might make sense why you don't deserve to have like the user, not deserve, but I, you know, I mean, like you, maybe you can't be completely anonymous, right? Because it's very difficult for me as a service provider to like give someone something if on credit, if I have zero indication about like many like layers about this person. And I would uh, I would actually add to the point that your identity could be the benefit to that. You, there's definitely a lot of things you can leverage, right, based on your identity. That goes into reputation. We know that the, the credit score and reputation, I mean, reputation score is also being implemented in blockchain. 
So I think there is definitely value to identity. What I don't know, again, you know, depends on what you're looking for. I think certain use cases deserve a lot of benefits coming from that identity notion, whether that's your true identity or something else, you can start really leveraging the value out of that. So and it's such a difficult question, but I, yeah. I like, you know, like if I just want to transact with someone and if I'm doing something as simple as buying a product and I can prove to them via blockchain mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. verifiably have that much money, then now, you know, my identity should not matter in the slightest, whether I'm, you know, I'm Indian American, whether I'm Indian American, whether like whatever I am, right? That mm-hmm. shouldn't matter. But there's so many cool, maybe economic and political science questions to be solved around credit identity and mm-hmm. you know, these types of things. So yeah, it's a hot topic. And obviously there's <laughs> no, no good solution because I'm sure there's going to be. And then the other thing to mention is because you talked about banks and stuff like with all of us, like majority of the cases, you know, it's not a problem to have a bank account and then you can give your ID and stuff and do your normal banking activities. But really just thinking about the minority group that has no bank access whatsoever, it almost feels that identity is the only thing that they have in order to have access to financial services and, you know, the future of crypto. So then for them, you know, identity is a crucial thing because they have to leverage that in some way to then say, get access to CBDCs and then using that CBDC to conduct other economic activities. So I think that's where it's interesting because Again, if you have a bank account, your bank account holds the value of your worth and money in that. If you don't, how could that identity be an account or like hold value that, you know, maybe that can be tied to say a private key, your facial or something. I'm just thinking out loud. But these are the kind of really interesting areas. Again, thinking about what is that population I'm trying to target and why they would want or do not want to leverage the identity piece. So. Yeah, and, and I think like, you know, and it's a misnomer to think about identity just being tied to like, you know, a sex or race or et cetera, et cetera. Like you said, some of these like minority populations, mm-hmm. perhaps the identity they look for is like, hey, you know, like I need to take on credit. And mm-hmm. in terms of identity, I just want you to know that I'm the type of individual yeah. that is good on my credit, right? And it, it that doesn't have to be tied to any like demographic aspects, right? Yeah, but yeah. So there's so many layers that yeah. I, I'm sure we could talk like, yeah, yeah, an yeah. entire episode. Yeah, and like a certificate you could turn on in certain situations and off in others, right? Like you don't need all aspects of your identity in all, yeah. um, in all facets. And I did just want to, so you circle back the synthetic CBDC. This mm-hmm. is the first time I've heard of that, but that is like super yeah, that's intriguing cool. to me because it's almost like a synergistic way where that's in right, terms of yeah. issuing money, no one's done it at scale and a better job than governments. <laughs> so like, therefore, I would more so trust them with that. But then in terms of issue, like putting it on a blockchain, perhaps now there's stable coins and private entities that have mm-hmm. a little more experience doing that. And therefore, I would love for governments to, you know, draw inspiration or maybe link yeah. up with them for that aspect. But it's cool that you can have both. And I never actually thought about it that way. To confess, I was always like, when I first learned about it, I was like kind of the problem. And like, I was just like, oh, these things are adversarial. And like, I'm super purist. And therefore, I you know hate this thing. But now I am being converted real time on the podcast. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yes, we, wa- we watch it in action. Every- Maybe I'll move on to. Yeah, we can. Okay, cool. So, um, Catherine, forgive us. We're going to get a little esoteric here, maybe because you graduated from Cambridge. So um, we're, we're excited. We're going to move in this direction. But one of the reasons we talk about crypto being confusing is because so many of us, especially if you live in a country with a stable operating currency, we don't really understand the role that money plays in our society and all the tools that it's used for, whether it's 
storing value or a unit of exchange or a unit of measure. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on how crypto can work in this kind of take on some of the tools or take on some of the jobs that currencies do today and kind of how you see this role of money in society going forward and how crypto might play into it. Sure. I think that's a pretty, pretty deep question because, you know, unpacking that a little bit, crypto, and there's so many different kind of types of crypto, right? So if it's crypto asset in and of itself, I think more and more people are looking at that, that as a, an investment asset class uh, mm-hmm. for you to, you know, to make profit or not. But then you're looking at other, like what we know of as money, which is more sort of how do I use it for payments? you know, the whole traditional classification of medium of account and like storage and all of that. So this is where, again, stable coins and the future of CBDC could be interesting. Now, you're right, certainly in many, especially developed countries, and I would say even those emerging countries that have very good new generation of payment infrastructure, it does kind of pose a pretty difficult question to say, well, if you already have all these things, you have 24-7 payment rails, etc., why would you need another one to just complement? And I think that's why, you know, the central banks are taking those things seriously and hopefully spending the next two to three years to really dig in and trying to come, like in the end, it's always, you know, it's worth to have that debate and it's really important not to ignore it and to just study whether or not you should have a CBDC ultimately. And if they do it properly, I think, you know, the next two to three years should give them that answer and, you know, every single country is going to be different, right? You know, if you're looking at the world currently, I think pretty much 90% of every single country in the entire world is looking at CBDC in some way or another. That is not to say that they will ultimately decide to go with that. I think, you know, they have the parliament, the, the people to answer to in the end, which is, is it relevant for our specific economy? I would only just throw out some potential use cases that might be relevant as people are thinking about it. So we've already touched on these stuff around financial inclusion. And, you know, again, CBDC could be that like additional optionality to address a very specific subset of the population, especially trying to think about if CBDC can be available to people, even if they don't have a bank account. And there's a lot of notion nowadays talking about a digital version of cash. That's kind of the, the analogy you can use for CBDC. And things like, can you use that CBDC in an entirely offline fashion, just like how you would use cash? without any intermediaries or data connectivity and stuff. That's an interesting potential use case that you can think about for CBDC. And then thinking about other areas in which, you know, whether that's stable coins or CBDC becomes really interesting, that goes into the whole programmability of money. I think this does represent a very exciting kind of almost new world in front of us. And we can draw a lot of inspiration from stable coins already because I think, you know, has it not been the fact that stable coins, everything is composable, especially so much things is built on Ethereum, like that whole birth of DeFi is very related to the whole exponential growth of stablecoin itself. So this time around, you're not looking at money just as the token to exchange for things. You're actually looking at this as a new platform that DeFi applications are now built on top of. You know, can stablecoins and CBDC in the future sustain that role? I think it's possible. It, it, again, it depends on that technical design of what the CBDC or stablecoin can look like. But you can definitely kind of like imagine to write a whole set of smart contract and stuff 
put it directly and to intap natively with stablecoins or CBDCs. So I think these are potential things we've never done before. I mean, again, it's a completely new area. It deserves a lot of attention for people to do proper research, understanding both the risks and opportunities. But that's, I think, you know, what's kind of quite exciting for the future of money. So, yeah. One last question before we get into our final few fun segments, but you mentioned this idea of programmable money. And one of the reasons when I explain to people why cryptocurrencies could be so powerful is because it's simply just easier to use if you're a developer and you need to use money within your application. So could you talk just briefly about the power that programmable money could be, especially relative to where we are today? Absolutely. And I think you touched on that very well. By the way, we do have a degree of programmability already in our Mm -hmm. day-to-day life in the sense, you know, paying your Netflix is kind of an ongoing subscription. You don't need to do anything, right? The whole, the direct debit or standing orders, that's programmability. However, it's pretty limited. And I think the set of conditionality you might be able to implement in the current sort of infrastructure is again limited. Like, you know, you can implement, say, Beyond $1,000, I will decline my transaction because that might be a fraud transaction. You can set those things up, but you can't set a series of conditionalities so complicated like what you would do on a staking DeFi platform. You know, if your liquidity collateral ratio drop below X percent, you have you trigger all these sort of say liquidation mechanism. That's there's no way you can implement it in the current ecosystem. So I think these are kind of the potential things that we can start thinking about again you know, if the future can involve different types of finance, including decentralized as well as centralized finance, and you want to kind of invoke more complicated sort of a smart contract that can interact with your money itself. I think this is where the programmability becomes interesting. And also during the COVID, the whole government disbursement schemes. And in fact, during the, uh, I think the stimulus bill, even in the draft version, people did study about the potential of having a wallet and digital dollar and stuff. So like if you're looking at G2C use cases or B2C in the sense like government to consumer or business to consumer, all these disbursement program in the future can have certain programmable features. And to the point I think you mentioned earlier, if you really are curious, you know, how do people exactly spend their money and where to? And if, let's say, the government want to really boost a certain sector of the industry, you can potentially implement much more powerful programmability features into the future of money to help to kind of be more targeted on your policy implementations. Awesome. Yep. Cool. So now maybe we can transition towards like the last few segments, which are more routine through podcasts. And the first one is, it's called bear talk. It's just like a funny term, but it's essentially touching on some common fears, uncertainties and doubts. So like FUDs, you know, that people often have regarding cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And this one, I mean, it's an interesting one. And we like to ask most of our guests this just to get your opinion, but Perhaps the most common one that you encounter when you tell people you're excited about cryptocurrencies, period, is this idea that certain proof of work protocols, I'm being extremely specific just to like give them the advantage that they like know, <laughs> but more often than not, they don't even know that, but I'm just mm-hmm. kidding. I need to be playing the bear here. So, so uh, I, it's just so hard for me. So basically, cryptocurrencies is generally energy inefficient is a common opinion people have. So I'm curious, like when your friends or maybe someone you just meet and you tell them that you're working in crypto, if that's the first thing they say to you, what's your most common reply? Just so we get. First, I think we need good data. We need some like really eye-catching data and tell people that might not necessarily be the case. I mean, we know that the proof of work is really energy inefficient for Bitcoin, but even when you're using proof of work in Ethereum, it's actually a lot more energy efficient. I mean, I have some chart from back in the day, but 
again, that's what I say, you know, what is that really eye-catching number? We need to get it. And also, I think what I tend to tell people is the world is moving. Everyone recognizes this is a very big problem. And the proof of stake in the future does represent a really good opportunity to actually bring down that energy efficiency to a lot better level than where we're at today. For sure. Awesome. Okay, a couple quick fire questions for you. Just use your gut here. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning. Do you prefer still or sparkling water? Sparkling. Smart contracts or smart people? Both. (laughs) Can I do both? (laughs) Sure. Bored apes or crypto punks? Again, both, but I probably have a little bit preference for punk, but yeah. Got it, got it. Stanford or Cambridge? Ooh, oh, <laughs> since, yeah. I'm no in a Stan- since I'm in a Stanford blockchain club uh, podcast, I would go for Stanford. For uh, thank you. Thank you. Now, would you suggest majoring in math, economics, or computer science? So I'm going to do a little advertisement for MSNE because we have this cool program called Computational Social Science that actually touches on everything you just said. So I would recommend that for people. So yeah. Ah, amazing. When we wrote the question, we actually, because I have a lot of friends in MSNE and I'm like, yeah. they do math, economics, and computer science. So yeah. I want to ask you which one the major. <laughs> but I love it. You said MSNE. I love it. Exactly. And then just to close, what is one book you're currently reading or one that you just finished that you enjoyed? Educated. Oh, it was a really good book. And I was like, wow, that was a crazy, crazy journey. But it was really, really fascinating. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've heard many good things. Yeah. And then what is one thing you do every day without fail? Waking up. <laughs> Waking up, that's a good one. <laughs> Talking about CBDC, my everyday life, I think. These days, but yeah, yeah okay. Talk about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's always interesting to see like habits of people. That, yeah. You know, so. Well, we can tell you talk about CBDC every day because we both, I'll speak for both of us. We learned a ton today and I'm sure our listeners did as well. I'm Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Where can folks follow you on social media or the best way to follow along with your work? So I'm active on both LinkedIn and Twitter. So you can just ping me there wherever you like, but yeah, definitely happy to. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Catherine. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was really, really fun. So yeah, see you guys soon. Awesome. See you soon. All right. Thank you for making it to the end of the episode brought to you by Stanford's Blockchain Club. If you enjoyed the content, please do give us a follow. We look forward to bringing more interviews from great speakers in the coming weeks.